Amen. Genesis chapter 28. In our last study, our last time together, we saw Jacob, who will become the central theme and focus of the, the next chapters going forward. We saw Jacob obtain the blessing that he was seeking after. You recall early in his life, his older brother Esau, who was entitled to have the birthright or the family right of being the spiritual leader moving forward. We saw Jacob ask and literally purchase from Esau that birthright with a bowl of soup. It meant nothing to Esau. He was a man who didn't care for spiritual things. And in the last chapter, we saw Jacob and Rebekah conspire together against Isaac, the father, who was prepared and ready to hand that blessing to Esau, the older brother. But it was taken by Jacob. He deceived his father into uh, believing that he was Esau, and Isaac gave the blessing to Jacob, and it took. And so Jacob obtained the thing that he was seeking after, and he now has the blessing of God. But what's amazing and remarkable to me about the fact that Jacob now has this blessing is that he's about to move into a period of his life where every outward marker of his life would be the contrary. You would look at him and say, if you're blessed, then I would rather be cursed. Because he's about to be thrust into exile, thrust into isolation, thrust into poverty, and thrust into difficulty as we're going to see him. What's amazing is that oftentimes we see with God that the path to blessing often starts with pain and isolation. We see that frequently throughout the scriptures, and we see it here with Jacob. I remember my own experience as a new Christian. And I was so blessed to have my eyes opened and to know truth and to have the word of God come to life. And it was like I knew something inside had changed, as many of you have too. You've had that experience where you've come to know God and you're born again. But I remember it was so difficult in those early days because although I was blessed and something had changed, it seemed like there were so many things that were so difficult. I felt like I was tripping and stumbling and falling away and then renewing my commitment again. It just seemed like, like everything was so unstable in my life. And I remember a brother came alongside me during those early days, and he could see the struggle that I was in. And he gave me a bit of advice that never left me. He said, Nick, he said, your life right now is like someone who just started off on a trail way at the bottom of a hill. And way off in the distance, way up at the top, you see a light. But where you are right now, you're so far from that light that you're tripping over everything and you're scraping your knees on the rocks and you're hitting your head on the branches that go over the path. He said to me this, and it was the most comforting thing. He said, listen, it's completely normal what you're going through, what you're experiencing. He said, keep your eyes on that light way at the top of the hill and just keep going. As you get closer to it, You'll see the path more clearly, and you'll have more experience to avoid the pitfalls and the struggles. That counsel proved out to be so useful to me, because not only did it give me comfort to know that what I was going through was somewhat normal, but it proved out, as he said, as I went on, I began to avoid, I began to see more clearly. Well, we see Jacob now, we see him just starting out on the plan that God has for his life, and it's a dark time at the very beginning as he's just thrust out. And so we resume the story in chapter 28, verse 1. It says that Isaac 
called Jacob. And he blessed him, and he charged him, and he said unto him, You shall not take a wife of the daughters of the Canaanite. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now, before you say, wait a minute, wouldn't that be his cousin? Yeah, it absolutely would. But in those days, that was pretty normal. We see that happening in the Bible. I mean, the gene pool was a lot purer in those days than it is today. And culturally, that wasn't something that was taboo like it was in our society now. You remember at the end of the last chapter, Rebecca found out, the mother, that Esau, Jacob's twin brother, wanted to kill him. And needing a way in order for Jacob to escape the wrath of Esau, she came to Isaac and she said, Isaac, Esau has married women from this land and they're driving me crazy. And if Jacob marries Canaanite women, it'll be the end of me. We need to send Jacob up north back to my family so that he can find a wife just like you found me. Now, for her, that was pure manipulation. That wasn't her motive at all. She was just trying to spare Jacob's life. But now that she's used that, that hook, that angle on Isaac, now it's going to happen. Isaac says, hey, you need to go north. You need to go to the house of Bethuel and take a wife from the daughters of Laban. Be careful, parent, of manipulating things as it concerns the direction of your children. Because once you do that, you're a slave to the outcome of that manipulation. It might have been God's will for this to happen in this way, but Rebecca did it through manipulative means, and that's never necessary in the things of God. God will use it. He'll redeem it. Remember this, parents. I heard this long ago, and it, it is so helpful. It's so true. Is that in our parenting and raising up our kids, we are not called to mold them into what we think they should be but rather we're called to unfold from them what God has placed in them. And it makes all the difference. Because sometimes we project things onto our kids that aren't the will of God at all for their lives. God has formed them. He made them on the inside. And it's not up to us to determine what that is. It's up to God. And so we unfold what's there. We never use manipulative tactics to steer our kids where they should go. We do it prayerfully. And in surrender to God, let him do his will in our kids' lives. Well, he gives him this charge, and then he gives him this blessing in verse 3. It says, And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that you may be a multitude of people, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you, that you may inherit the land wherein you are a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. So he confirms the blessing now being transferred completely onto Jacob. Thus we call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob those three because that blessing now has been passed on to him. So Isaac sent away Jacob and he went to Paddan Aram unto Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. And so he heads off in that direction. Now, verse 6. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram in order to take him a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, 
and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Paddan Aram, and putting all those three things together, Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau to Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, the two Canaanite women that he had already taken, this new wife, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. And so Esau kind of is in the loop to the conversation that took place between Isaac and Jacob. And he puts two plus two plus two together. And he realizes that his parents don't like the choices that he's made. They don't want Jacob to make the same choices. That Jacob is in harmony with his parents by obeying their voice and that they are completely displeased with him. And so whether his response is out of sarcasm or sincerity, Esau says, I'm out of here. And rather than going north, he goes south, and he goes to the area where Ishmael, remember Ishmael, the son of Abraham through Hagar, the work of Abraham's flesh? He goes to Ishmael, and he takes the daughter of Ishmael as his wife. Now, again, I don't know if this was out of sarcasm, saying, oh, you want me to marry a member of the family? Well, then I'll choose the most godless member of the family I can because I'm not going to follow after your God. Or was he sincere, thinking, well, if these Canaanite women don't please my parents, then maybe if I at least can get a wife from the daughters of Ishmael, then I can redeem some favor from them. We don't know which it is, but here's what we do know. We know that in Esau, this man who's now grown probably in his 60s, maybe in his 70s at this point of his life, craves the approval of his parents. And that's an amazing thing for us to understand. That even the most rebellious of our kids, even the most seemingly godless, the ones that seem completely unaffected by spiritual things, they crave our acceptance. Our kids want to know that we receive them, that we accept them. And it's important for us to know that. Sometimes, especially with the Esau's, and all of us have kids that have some Esau in them, don't, don't we? Every, in fact, every kid has some Esau in them at some times. We never want to approve, condone, or enable Esau-like behavior, but we never want to forget how much our kids need our affirmation in the areas where they're strong. And it's important, no matter what age we are and no matter how old our kids are, that they know that we're for them that we give them the approval that they need. They crave it. They need it. Sometimes in our frustration for where they are, we withhold. Never do it. Well, it says Esau went. He took this woman to be his wife. And then he stays in that area. And we won't see Esau again for about 20 years in the narrative. But we're not finished with Esau. But we resume with Jacob now in verse 10. And he becomes the theme and the center of all. And I love what we read here. It says in verse 10, it says that Jacob went out from Beersheba and he went toward Haran. At this point, Jacob departs towards Haran. And what's remarkable about this is that at this point, it would have been fitting for Rebekah, the mother, to send the message to him that your life is now safe. Esau is no longer a threat. Remember in the last chapter what she said? She said, go up north, and once Esau's wrath has been subsided, in a couple days, she said, I'll send you a message, and you'll be able to come back home. But now, because of her manipulation on things, 
And because Isaac has said, go up there and grab a wife before you come back, that message can't come. And consequently, not only can't Jacob go back home, but God's got Jacob right where he wants him. Because Jacob has gone from having everything that he needed, living in a relative state of comfort, to now being in exile and in poverty, to the point where we're going to see in a moment he's going to have to use rocks in order to make a bed and to have a place to lay his head. And now God's got Jacob in the place where he can begin working in his life and begin molding him into the man that he's supposed to be. You guys know, if you've been around for a little while, that one of my favorite books, aside from the Bible, is The Pilgrim's Progress, that book written by John Bunyan, the Puritan preacher about 400 and something years ago. And it's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character is Christian and He goes on a pilgrimage, which is the Christian life. And along the way, he meets characters that represent people that you and I interact with as Christians. Mr. Worldly Wise Man and Salvation and Evangelist. These are the names of the characters of the people. And right after going through the narrow gate and the burden of sin falling off his back, he goes up to the house of the interpreter. And it's a kind of an allegorical picture of an interaction that he had between him and God, the Holy Spirit. And in the house of the interpreter, he sees amazing things. He's given instruction, he's given vision, he's given prophecy concerning his own life, insight into the Christian world, the kingdom of God. And it's this amazing high. But as he comes to the end of that experience, the interpreter who rules the house says to Christian, he says, you must now descend into the valley of humiliation. And it's a tough place where you're going to go. And after that, the valley of the shadow of death. And it will be dangerous. And it'll be perilous. But it's essential. And I just remember reading that for the first time. And man, it's amazing how we can go from these heights of spiritual bliss, but yet God in his wisdom can lead us by the narrow path right into the valley of humiliation, the valley of the shadow of death. But he has his purpose there. We see it frequently on the pages of Scripture. You know, I think of Abraham, how God called him to leave Babylon, and he was brought into a desolate place. He was isolated alone, somewhere where God could get a hold of his life. I think of young Joseph, whom we'll be studying in future chapters, and how he was there at home, but God had to get him alone in the house of Potiphar and then in the prison. I think of Moses, who was educated in Egypt and had the wealth of Egypt at his disposal. But God had a plan for his life, and so God had to get him out of Egypt and bring him into a desert place where for years he was alone so he could encounter God and come to know God. Over and over again, I think of Samuel had to be separated from his mom and brought into a strange place. He was around people, but he was alone as God worked upon him with his word. I think of Elijah the prophet, a man of the wilderness, a man who was taught by God, tempered by God shaped by God in the desert, the isolated place. I think of Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, a man so full of energy and so full of zeal, but God had something he needed to teach him, something that needed to be imparted to him that couldn't be done in a classroom and it couldn't be done amongst his peers. It couldn't even be done in a church. It had to be done in the desert. And so Paul, this man who loved people, was called into isolation so that God could get him alone and do something in his life. And I find that it's the way of God with his people. He doesn't differentiate. And he has a way of bringing us into a place 
through the circumstances, through the things that happen in our lives, a place where it's just us and Him. Because there's something that He needs to do that we might know Him, that our eyes might be fixed and placed upon Him. And Jacob finds himself now in that place as he has departed from Beersheba and as he's making his way up to Haran, he's alone. He's in a deserted place. His future is so uncertain. And God doesn't waste any time. Notice what it says in verse 11. It says that he lighted upon a certain place and he tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and he put them for his pillows and he laid down in that place to sleep. And now here comes God, verse 12. And it says, and he dreamed and behold, a ladder, probably more accurately, a staircase. In the Hebrew, it just means an arising. You see something that comes up, set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Perhaps you've heard of Jacob's ladder. This is the reference where that comes from. He sees into the spirit. He sees something that he wasn't able to see in the natural. And he realizes that there's a medium between heaven and earth, a ladder, a staircase, something that's connecting between the two. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, And then he confirms, he says, The land wherein you lie, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And, verse 15, Behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places where you go, and I will bring you again into this land, And I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. And so Jacob has this amazing vision, this amazing encounter with God, where God reveals to him certain truths, reveals to him his person, and then gives him promises concerning his destiny and what his seed will become, and then promises concerning himself while he walks upon this earth. And so he sees this ladder. Now, the amazing thing, the Bible interprets the Bible, doesn't it? And so you say, well, what is this staircase? What is this medium that connects heaven and earth that the angels of God are ascending and descending upon that Jacob sees in his vision? For several hundred years, no one would know. They would read the passage. They would believe the truth of it, but wouldn't understand exactly what was taking place until Jesus would begin his public earthly ministry. And right there in John's Gospel, Right at the beginning, when Jesus was walking on the shores of Galilee, calling the very first of the apostles that would come and follow after him, James and John, Peter and Andrew. And they went and they got Nathanael and they said, Hey, Nathanael, come, we found the one of whom it is written. We think he might be the Messiah. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus looks at Nathanael. And he says, Ha, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. He sees right into the person of Nathanael. And he says, man, this guy is just pure. He's sincere. He's a good man. Nathaniel looked at Jesus and he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He said, how do you know me? And Jesus looked at him and he said, before you saw me, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you long before you saw me. And when Nathaniel heard those words, we don't know what he was doing underneath that fig tree. Maybe he was reading a scroll of the scripture, calling out to God. 
saying, God, I need to know you. I want to know you. And now Jesus is showing and saying, look, I knew you. I saw you there. And there was something that happened in that interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel that Nathaniel, who was skeptical, looked at Jesus and he said, you're the Christ. You're the Savior, the Son of God. And Jesus smiled back at Nathaniel, this whole thing going on just between the two of them. And he said, you believe because I saw you sitting underneath the fig tree? He said, after this, it's John chapter 1, verse 51. He said, after this, you'll see greater things than this. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What Jesus revealed, not just to Nathaniel that day, but to you and I, and that it's recorded in the scripture, is that when Jacob saw this arising out of this earth, this medium that connected the kingdom below with the kingdom of God, he saw none other than Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator is one that connects between two sources that are divided or separated. And Jesus is the bridge, the mediator that connects the two kingdoms. And thus, Jacob sees Jesus. He has a revelation of the way to God. What did Jesus say to his apostles in John chapter 14? Remember that passage when he said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And then he said to them, he said, I'm going to the Father and you guys know the way to get there. And they kind of were like, why are you doing this to us? We don't understand these things that you're saying. And Thomas, who has that reputation of being the doubter, looked at him and said, Lord, we don't know the way. How are we supposed to know the way? And Jesus said to him, actually it was Philip, not Thomas. He said, Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is that which connects heaven to earth. And it's what Jacob saw that day. The first thing that was revealed to Jacob in this vision that he had for the very first time is that there are two kingdoms that are simultaneously existent in reality. Number one is the kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of this world, which is lower. And secondly, there is the kingdom of God, which is above. And the two things are absolutely separated from one another except for one thing, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and men. He connects the two. Now, in that, when Jacob saw this vision, he saw the Lord standing above it. What that tells us is that God is the Lord over both kingdoms. He stands over heaven and over above above earth. When we pray, what did Jesus teach us to say? He said, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a link between the two, but the heaven is the greater reality of the two. I saw a documentary recently, upon, uh, it was on the study of human consciousness. And the conclusion of the study of those that have kind of delved into this and talked, about, talked to people that have had experiences kind of out of body or they've died and come back is what they've realized is that consciousness exists outside of our brain and outside of our physical presence in our body. We know that already. We're Christians, right? We know that we're eternal beings. And again, science catches up with the Bible and what God has already ordained and and designed. But the author of the study and the main, um, you know, kind of uh, producer of of the input, 
he had an experience where he was out of his body because he had had some accident, he had some sickness and the whole thing, and he was gone for a while. And, and, and he came back, they brought him back to life. And his conclusion on the thing, he was a doctor and his whole belief system changed, not quite to the point where he said there's a Jesus. But what he said is he said that there is a reality outside of the present reality that we're in, and it is actually a greater reality than the physical earth that we inhabit. That's an amazing and remarkable thing for someone who doesn't even know the Lord to realize. We think heaven is the lesser reality. Well, that's the mystical somewhere out there. This is reality, you know, what we can touch and feel and tangibly, you know, embrace. But the greater reality is the kingdom that's above. It's the kingdom that awaits us. And Jacob sees it for the very first time. And so God reveals to Jacob the, 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 the reality of this kingdom that's there. Jesus, the, the eternal Son of God, the Lord, stands above it. And then he reveals to him four things about his own destiny or purpose, that is, the land that will be given to him, the future of his descendants, that they will spread abroad and their territory will increase, and that the blessing of God will be with them and upon everyone else in the world. The families of the earth will be blessed. And then God reveals four things about Jacob himself, that God will be with Jacob, God's going to keep Jacob, God's going to bring him back into this land, though he'll be leaving for a season. And God gives him the greatest promise of all. He says, I will not leave you until I finish and conclude everything that I have spoken to you of. And that's a something that will go far beyond the death of Jacob. That means God's never going to leave Jacob. It's a great promise that he gives. This is an amazing encounter that Jacob has with God in this moment of his life. What's, if, if you were, let's just say, a Martian, and you came to earth for the very first time, and you landed in the desert, and there was no human being there, and you didn't know if there was any life on earth, and you got out of your you know, spaceship, and you just started walking, and in the desert, you came to a deserted automobile. You just saw one. You've never seen one before. You don't know what one is. You just see this mass of metal with four wheels, and it's in decent condition, working condition for whatever reason. And you come to it, and you look at this thing. Now, you would see it. You wouldn't know what it's called. You wouldn't know what it's for. But if you studied it for a little while, you would come to some conclusions. You would see the wheels, and you would figure, well, this is some kind of a vehicle, some kind of a transport device that moves people from one place to another. You would look inside the windows or maybe even open the door and you would see like the shifter knob, you know, to put, put the thing in gear and you would see the buttons and controls, but you wouldn't know what any of it's for because you don't know what a car is. It's there for the very first time. And, and, and you know, you'd think, well, this is kind of neat. You would know that somebody made it, but you would have no clue outside of that how it worked or what it was for. But then say, as you were there looking at it, the person who had run out of gas comes and they bring the gas can and they have the keys and they fill the thing up. And then they show you, they say, hey, come here. And they put the fuel in the thing and then they put the key in the ignition and, vroom, and the thing comes to life. And you look under the hood and you, show, you see this motor and then he takes you and puts you in the car and he turns on the radio and whoa, the sound, what is that? And then turns on the fan and the air conditioner then puts it in gear and begins to drive. All of a sudden, purpose has been magnified. Because you see not only what this thing is, but you see what it's for and how it works. Now let's translate that same experience into the natural or the spiritual as it relates to our life. You're born into this world, right? 
When we come in this body and we come into to realization, I've got a hand and I've got five fingers and, and I've got a voice and I've got hair and I can see and there's a world out here that, that's all there. And I can think and I can dream and I'm attracted to things and some things to me look pretty and some things don't. And, you know, and, and all of a sudden I've got this body, I've got this life, but I'm kind of like the Martian. I, I, I'm discovering it, but I don't really know what it is. I don't know what it's for. I come to a certain age in my life, I'm developed, I'm grown, I'm looking around. And I have to ask myself the question. I have to say, what in the world is a nick? What's it made for? It's got all these components and parts, and it's got all these things, but how do they fit together? And it's evident to me that somebody made it. This isn't a fortuitous concurrence of accidental circumstance, you know, this mass of, of, of atoms that makes up who I am. I don't get it. But then what happens if I be so graced to come into an encounter with God, is that the one who invented it and the one who makes it comes. And he comes inside and he turns on the ignition. And the spirit of him who knit me together in my mother's womb and knows me better than I know myself comes inside. And all of a sudden I can begin to discover what it is that I am, first of all, and secondarily what it is that I'm made for. And that's exactly what happens to Jacob here in this encounter. God comes to him, and all of a sudden, everything that he heard about God from everyone else in his life, he now hears from God as God comes in and reveals himself to Jacob for the very first time. His whole life, he had known Abraham until he was 15 years old, the God who called me out of Ur of the Chaldees. He had been with Isaac his whole life and Rebekah as they talked about how God had led them and God had blessed them. And for years, Jacob was going, uh-huh, the God of Abraham and Isaac. Uh-huh, the God who calls out of her the colonies. Uh-huh, the God who... Yeah, and he would hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. But for all the years that he was in their house, it was never his God. It was his parents' God. It was Abraham's God. It was our people's God. But now God gets him in a place where Abraham... I'm sorry, where God becomes... Jacob's God. He encounters God for the very first time in this whole thing, and it's an amazing outcome that happens. Notice what he says in response to this whole experience in verse 16. It says that Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and he said, How dreadful or how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and the very gate of heaven. I love this. Because all of a sudden, after God is introduced to Jacob, everything changes in his life. This commonplace that was Bethel, or Canaan, or the land that he grew up in. The rocks that he had seen his whole life, the smooth stones that represent that desert area. The things that had been so common and so just plain for all of his existence up to this point, now all of a sudden it changes completely because he realizes God is in this place and I didn't even know it. And the place becomes an awesome place that previously had just been a common place. This is nothing, it meant nothing to me before. But now that I've met God and I know that God is here, this is awesome, it's totally brand new. Not only that, but the very trial that Jacob is going through in this poverty impoverished, exilic state as he's running away and doesn't know what's coming of his future, even that becomes awesome because he sees that the Lord is in it. 
The Lord is in this place and I knew it not. The second thing that happens to him is that he develops immediately a healthy, holy fear of God. It says that he was afraid in verse 17. And he said, how awesome is this place. None other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Common became awesome because of God's presence. What an amazing thing. Watch what happens in verse 18. It says that Jacob rose up early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put for his pillows and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. You see what's going on right here? The thing that had one moment ago represented Jacob's pain, Jacob's trial, the difficulty of his life, he is now turning into a monument and and a symbol of his anointing. This thing that I thought was horrible in my life, this thing that's been causing me strife and anxiety that I wish wasn't true, this circumstance that I've gotten into that I wish I hadn't, that I would do anything to change and get out of, all of a sudden that very thing has become the monument of the knowledge of God in his life. And so I ask you tonight as you're sitting here, what rock are you using for a pillow tonight wishing that it wasn't there? Or wishing that maybe it was a little bit softer? What place or circumstance do you find yourself in tonight thinking, I would do anything if I could to change the circumstance that I'm in? My word to you is that God wants to meet with you in that circumstance. He led you into that circumstance so that there He could reveal Himself to you. And when you see Him, that very thing that today you maybe hate, the situation, the struggle at your job, the dead end that you feel like you're in in your life, the isolation and singleness and aloneness, the not being able to see ends meet, whatever that thing is, when God meets you in it, it will go from being the thing you hate to the thing that you look at and say, that has become the thing that is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. He sets that rock up for a pillar and then he pours oil upon it, oil in the Bible being a symbol of anointing that it was there that the Spirit of God did something in my life and it becomes the most important, most precious thing to me. He says in verse 19 that he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. Luz means almond tree. Bethel means the house of God. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Now, he's not putting conditions on his relationship with God. He's not saying, well, if God's going to do this for me, then I'll do this for God. That's not the idea. The idea is more since. God has given him a promise. Jacob has received and embraced that promise. And what he's saying is that since God has made this declaration and promise over my life, this is going to be my declaration back to him, that as much as he gives me, I'm going to give one-tenth back to him in this relationship that we have. Now, what's amazing is I look at this whole thing where Jacob says this. Think about the experience that he had. I mean, think about if that were you. What if tonight on your way home, all of a sudden, you know, you pull off because there's just a hint of daylight and you see the colors of the sky you know, out there towards the, where's the sunset in the west, right? So you look out to the west and you just, you pull over and you look out there and you see the hues of the colors. And all of a sudden, God just meets with you. And it's so supernatural. He opens up the heavens. He gives you this amazing vision. You hear his voice almost tangibly. His presence is so real in your life. I mean, that's amazing. That's a remarkable thing to have an experience like that. 
But what blows my mind in this is that Jacob doesn't deserve it. He's done nothing to earn it. He has been nothing but a liar, a conniver, a manipulator his entire life. And yet because of the love of God and the blessing of God that's been placed upon him, God comes and meets with him in this amazing way. He didn't deserve it at all. That encourages me. Because I don't deserve the blessing of God in my life. I have it because I know Jesus. Not because of anything that I've done. Jacob was blessed by God by grace. Another thing that amazes me about it is that Jacob still didn't have it all together. He didn't even understand that this whole relationship is something that God does. He, he starts making agreements with God right at the very beginning. He says, all right, God, well, if you're going um, to do that, then uh, I'm going to throw in on this deal too and have some skin in the game. And if you're going to do all that, then I'm going to do all that. He doesn't even get it yet. See, God doesn't save us for what he can get out of us or what we're going to do in reciprocation to what he's done for us. He saves us by grace through faith. He sets his love on us because he loves us and the promises that he gives aren't contingent on anything that we're going to do for him. And yet, even though Jacob didn't have it all together yet, God still blessed him and still met with him. I believe it is the birthright of every Christian, every person that has made Jesus their Lord, that we would come to know God in the same way that Jacob does here. That he would be more than a concept, more than something that we hear from our parents or hear from a pastor or hear from a special select few that, okay, well, that person is graced to be close enough. No, it doesn't work like that. If God has called you by name and brought you to salvation and you've called out in His Son, then you're as much His as Jacob was or anyone else ever will be. And as such, God wants to meet with you. And it will never be because of something that you deserve or something that you can purchase or something that you can earn. It will never be because of something that God can get from you on the other side. It will be because God wants you to know Him. And he wants the things that you have heard from others to be things that you've heard from him. And he's not to be someone else's God in our lives. He's to be our God. And only he can bridge that gap and make that known to us. Maybe you're a young person here tonight. And you still feel like you're on the outside looking in. I see it. I walk up and down the halls of the Sunday school and sometimes in the solid ground. And I see some of the teenage people and they're looking and they're going, what is this? I sense something, I hear something, but I don't know. God wants to meet with you. God wants to meet with you. And he will. One generation shall declare your works to the next, the Bible says. God will be faithful to every generation. I love Jacob's simplicity. Look at verse 22. It says, And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be. God's house. Oh Lord, come and fill this stone. You know? How many people have done that through the ages, right? Lord, this stone, this cathedral that I have built, this is going to be your house. God goes, all right. Temple made with hands. The heaven of heavens can't contain me. You think I'm going to live in your rock? And of all that you will give me, I will surely give one-tenth unto you. Oh, my goodness. Jacob's got a lot to learn. One verse of chapter 29, and we're done tonight. I'm putting the worship team on call right now because it's a little early tonight. It says in verse 1, it says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. 
Listen, Christian, with God, you're complete at the beginning. When he calls you and saves you, he sees you as though you're already the finished product. The way God looks at you the moment you're born again is as if you were Jesus himself. And the reason that's true is because what God does when you are born again is that he places you in Jesus. And that means in order for God to see you, he has to look at Jesus, and that's what he sees when he looks at you. And therefore, we are complete at the very beginning. That's why it says over and over again in the book of Ephesians that we are in Christ, right? We're in Christ. We are in him. And it says in Colossians that we are complete in Christ. Not we will be complete, not that we're working towards completion, but that we are complete in Jesus Christ. So when God sees us at the very beginning, we're complete. But we also, on that day, start the journey. It says that Jacob then went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of Eve. God was completely for him. He was completely saved. He was completely sealed. God already spoke to him of the things that would be done, that would be completed. But now Jacob is going to walk through and he's going to live those things out. And over the forging, the trials, the experience, the education, the interaction with God, the wisdom that's given to him, the character and nature of Christ that's been imparted to him by grace is now going to be forged into his character while God works it out in his everyday life. And that's the same thing that happens to you and I. He saves us completely at the beginning, but now you and I are walking out and working out what God has already worked in in the person of His Son. While we're being conformed into His nature day by day and moment by moment. And ultimately, God's will and desire for every one of us is that He be completely the Lord of our lives. We sang that song at the end of our worship set, Take my life and let it be consecrated unto you. Here I am, we said, all of me. Take my life. It's all for thee. And we sing those words and, and inside we mean it. We cry out because we know it's right. But yet then when God comes and he says, hey, remember when you said? And we go, uh, <laughs> what did I say exactly? Can I see the contract? Is there, is there some fine print on there? If you were to go to the White House after church tonight, and then, you know, probably tomorrow more fittingly than tonight. Don't go there tonight. You'll get arrested. You know. But in the morning, you go for a visit. What you would discover is that the people that inhabit or work in or have, a, have access to the White House, they have different levels of clearance depending on who they are. And so you meet the janitor, and he's got this badge. It's got a magnetic strip and RFID chip in inside. It's official. You know, it says White House staff. You know, wow, power. And you say, wow, what level of clearance do you have? And he says, I can get into the cleaning closet and the bathrooms. High level. He says, wow. But then you meet some other people. And he says, well, what's your role? What do you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a cleric. I, I file things away. And so my level of clearance is such and such. And I can get into a few more doors than the janitor but I certainly can't get into a lot of doors in the White House. Then you move through the ranks and you come up higher and you come to the Secretary of State. You see his badge. It looks very much the same, but 
He's got a much higher level of clearance than the janitor or the cleric. So you say, well, what can you do? You say, well, I can go into this room and this wing, and I have these passwords for these computers, and I have the privilege of access to intel beyond what most people do. You say, well, can you go into the Oval Office? Oh, no, I don't have that level of clearance. But then you meet the President of the United States. And he barely even needs a badge. He's got full access. He's got a key to every door. He can go in every closet. He can look in every file. He has every password. There's nothing that would be hidden from the President of the United States. Well, maybe a few years ago. It might not be like that now. You know. Why? Because he has full access. You and I. The Bible says that we are God's temple. We're God's house. The Bible says that Jesus Christ stands at the door of our heart and he knocks and he says, if anyone opens up, he will come in and have fellowship, commune with that person. And so we say, yes, Jesus, come into my life. I believe. I want you to be my Lord. I need you to save me from my sins. I've made a mess of things and I'm letting you inside. And he receives our invitation and he comes inside our life. And we say, you are so privileged to be in this house now. And Lord, I have made such a mess in the bathrooms that you have access to the janitor's closet and the bathrooms. I have given you clearance to clean those areas of my life out because I have screwed them up. And he says, really? You're going to give me access to the bathrooms and the janitor closet? I'm, I'm a, I'll tell you what I think of it. No, he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He says, okay. And he goes into the closet and he cleans it up and he grabs his things and he goes into the bathroom and he begins his work and as a gentleman he quietly starts to clean up those things that we've messed up in our life. And as he begins to reorder and reshuffle and put things where they're supposed to be, he comes to us, he interacts with us and he says, hey, how about a promotion? All right. You can, you can have the kitchen too. And so we give him a new level of clearance. And so he comes into the kitchen. We're a little worried about how he might rearrange things in there, what things he might take out, what things he might put in. Do you eat organic, Lord? You know. But he wins our trust in the kitchen. And slowly and surely over time as we walk with him and his patience and his gentleness and his power and his kindness, he woos access from our will into other and greater parts of our life. And his will, ultimately, is that he would have total access to all. Every file, every room, every drawer, every password, every secret thing. And ultimately, the reason why he wants it is because he can do more and better for our lives than we will ever be able to do for our own. And the experiences and the pressures and the trials and the rocks that we use for pillows and the things that we hate about our life are His way of demonstrating His faithfulness and His power and His worthiness. And the amazing thing about our God is that He has made us for Himself. And when we give Him complete access, we are satisfied. And there is no satisfaction in any other thing or in any other place. And the great thing is that that's what He wants for us. Father, we just thank You tonight, Lord, as we 
see the beginnings of what you're doing in this man, Jacob. And tonight, Father, I personally am thankful that Jacob was not a good man. I thank you, Lord, that you chose a man who was a deceiver and who was self-willed and self-motivated and could care less about anyone but himself. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are powerful enough to turn that man into something so very different than what he started out.